Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumpy, filling in by invitation for this my sister and comrade, the host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. We live in a global world. We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Congress is moving swiftly to prevent a looming rail worker strike. Lawmakers are reluctantly intervening in a labor dispute to stop what they say would be a devastating blow to the nation's economy if the transportation of fuel, food, and other critical goods were disrupted. The House is expected to act first today. The unions have threatened to strike if an agreement can't be reached over paid sick leave before December 9th. Eileen Alfandari has more. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she'll quickly schedule a House vote to impose the contract. I don't like going against the ability of of, uh, unions to strike, but weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike. The railroads that include BNSF, Union Pacific, CSX, Kansas City Southern, and Norfolk Southern have refused to consider adding sick time because they don't want to spend any more on the labor deals than they agreed to in September. They've also argued that rail unions have agreed over the decades to forego paid sick time in favor of higher wages and stronger short-term disability benefits. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders has been the most outspoken member of Congress in support of the unions. He tweeted that at a time of record profits in the rail industry, it's unacceptable that rail workers have zero guaranteed paid sick days. Sanders said it is his intention to block consideration of the rail legislation until a roll call vote occurs on guaranteeing seven paid sick days to rail workers in this country. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The Senate passed bipartisan legislation to protect same-sex marriage and interracial marriages Tuesday. Catherine Carley reports. We are not pushing this legislation to make history. We are doing this to make a difference for millions upon millions of Americans. It's a historic day, but it's going to make a difference. Senator Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin celebrated the Senate's passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, which would ensure same-sex and interracial marriages are enshrined into federal law. The bill, which passed in a 61-36 to vote, includes protections for religious liberties, such as exempting businesses from providing services to couples, and was supported by 12 Republicans, including Senator Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming. For the sake of our nation today and its survival, We do well by taking this step. The bill now returns to the House, where Democrats remain in control for the rest of the legislative session. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. House Democrats are poised to usher in a new generation of leaders today. New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries is expected to be elected House Democratic leader, becoming the first black American to lead a major political party in decades. 
Two other Democrats are expected to sail to leadership as well today. Catherine Clark of Massachusetts as a Democratic whip and Pete Aguilar of Southern California as caucus chair. Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes has been convicted of seditious conspiracy for a violent plot to overturn President Joe Biden's election win, handing the Justice Department a major victory in its massive prosecution of the deadly January 6, 2021 insurrection. A Washington, D.C. jury Tuesday found Rhodes guilty of sedition after three days of deliberations. Then the nearly two-month-long trial showcased the far-right extremist group's effort to keep Republican Donald Trump in the White House at all costs. An attorney for Rhodes said they intend to appeal. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is condemning Russia's week-long assault on Ukraine's power grid as an attempt to turn off the heat so that civilians suffer. As the U.S. pledged $53 million to Ukraine for power grid equipment and delivery. Blinken's remarks in Romania come as Ukraine's foreign minister said NATO countries gave him a number of new commitments on arming his nation. The European Union wants to set up a UN-backed specialized court to investigate possible war crimes committed by Russia and Ukraine. Russia's military forces have been accused of abuses ranging from killings in the Kiev suburb of Bucha to deadly attacks on civilian infrastructure, including the March 16th bombing of a theater in Mariupol that likely killed close to 600 people. In China, protesters braved the country's crackdown on dissent and squared off with police in hazmat suits over the country's strict COVID lockdown policies. Video on social media show protesters in at least one region, Gang Zhao, squaring off with police. China's ruling Communist Party has vowed to crack down on infiltration and sabotage activities by hostile forces. Security forces have conducted random ID checks and searched mobile phones for evidence of participation participation in protests. Monitoring groups estimate between 27 to 43 protests have taken place across China since this past weekend. Australia's prime minister is joining the calls for the U.S. to stop its prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who's fighting extradition to the U.S. from jail in the United Kingdom. He faces life in prison for espionage charges over publishing classified documents on WikiLeaks that shows potential U.S. war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Yemen. The announcement comes as major newspaper publishers, including the New York Times this week, called for the U.S. to stop its persecution of Assange. Many of them collaborated with Assange to publish the documents and some won awards for their journalism. They said in a letter, publishing is not a crime. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. That was our news headlines. Thank you so very much for those news headlines coming from KPFA. The World Cup at Qatar has been fraught with controversy on and off the pitch, beginning with the displacement of over 2,000 African and Asian migrants who were forced out of their track home housing within an hour's notice to accommodate incoming tourists. 6,500 other Black and Asian migrant workers were killed in preparations leading to this World Cup, including thousands of Nepalese killed in the building of the super stadium where the games are being played due to unsafe working conditions in extreme heat. I'm pleased to be joined by Christopher Gaffney as our first guest. Christopher Gaffney is a professor at NYU whose research over the last 20 years has focused on the intersection of development, urbanism, and sports with a focus on studying the impacts 
of the World Cup and Olympics in the last three decades. Greetings. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the United States won their game yesterday. Every time the U.S. wins, it brings more focus on the U.S. side. And, you know, over my lifetime, and I'm I'm old as dirt and twice as funky, I've seen the increase in the U.S. interest in the World Cup. We also know that the World Cup, the Olympics, it doesn't just bring the sports, that it brings other pieces along with it that may not be so wonderful. And in this World Cup, as as I indicated at the top, we've had so many controversies that have come up. The World Cup is a mega sport event. Some of us are having to accept the fact that there's no meetings or work being done in our own places because people are watching. But they obviously impact more than just people's ability to focus on their work. They have real political, social, and economic impacts. What are some of the political impacts that we've been seeing already from this World Cup in Qatar? I guess in the United States, we have a very particular, our media has a very particular view of things. There was a daily report by the New York Times the other day that only focused on the Qatari element of the World Cup and how the Qataris are doing this and the Qataris doing that without looking at the structural conditions of global football and the political economy of the World Cup in general. So what we really need to understand is that these relatively simple leisure decisions we make in in turning on a game on Fox News, drinking the Budweiser's, supporting the advertisers, uh, getting into a froth of nationalism. These are all political choices that that we are making all the time. And we tend to depoliticize our sporting and leisure choices when we really should be doing just the opposite. Um, But in the particular context of the Qatari World Cup, we see geopolitics playing out in very interesting ways as the the smallest nation to ever host an event of this magnitude with 330,000 Qatari nationals uh, who have brought in more than 2 million guest workers to build these stadiums under conditions of modern slavery, according to to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. And as you mentioned, more than 6,500 people have died in the construction of stadiums and related infrastructure. We've also seen a prohibition of LGBTQ um, iconography. Uh, Rainbow flags had been banned, and and now that FIFA has reversed position on this and say they will now start to allow them in the stadiums. We've seen a ban on alcohol at the last minute by the Qatari uh, Supreme Organizing Committee, which is a political religious stance, but also a, a a, a very kind of underhanded way of of, of dealing with uh, Western fans, uh, where they said, "Okay, we're going to have we're going to have beer at the stadium. We're going to charge you fifteen uh, fifteen dollars a beer, and you have to drink it out of sight." And then they kept pushing it to the side, and at the end, they just they just took it away from the stadiums altogether. And so these kinds of political things are always playing out at every World Cup, but in the in the case of the first. World Cup held in a a majority Muslim Middle Eastern country Um, in the current geopolitical climate. We've uh, we've seen these issues really heightened, especially by uh, English language media. It's interesting because, as you indicated, you know, when people are looking at the United States or we're in the United States and we're watching, there's a lot of, of judgy judginess, some of it quite appropriate. And then I'm thinking about the next World Cup that's supposed to go to a bunch of different countries, including the United States. 
And I'm trying, you know, I'm imagining with those headlines, I, I can think of some headlines I'd be writing um, about what is happening and what happens in terms of human rights violations um, in this country. I'm thinking about the interview with the young black captain of the U.S. team um, in which the Iranian reporter asked him, you know, how are you playing for the United States, given all of the anti-blackness, police murders, et cetera, that go on in that country? Of course, I'd ask him about Afro-Iranians and how they're doing. But um, that seems to be, and those types of issues seem to not just, as you pointed out, the issues that are playing out in this World Cup, but are, you know, issues that have played out in past World Cups and are likely to play out in future, including um, the United States. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, this is kind of the the condescending moralization of Western Europe and, and the United States uh, about anything that happens out there. You know, th- those people are out there are always violating human rights and here we're just fine but if you were to you know what what country has the highest percentage of its population incarcerated in the world you say well the united states right and so what are the human rights considerations that uh, go into hosting a world cup here and i was actually on the sustainability committee of the 2026 united bid and wrote the human rights assessment for that bid where and had a metric system where we're evaluating police brutality, homelessness, income inequality, all the all the you know fairly common human rights metrics, and none of the U.S. cities did particularly well in this metric. So, we really need to always contextualize what's happening in the media with a, a solid look at our own selves. And if we think about what happens in even with the NFL and the, you know this billionaires club and the public financing. Of, of stadiums for private profit. And, and then we look and see what's going to be happening in Los Angeles with the 2028 Olympics and the vectorization of development and gentrification, militarization, facial recognition technologies. All these things that are part and parcel of a, of a mega event are also happening in the United States and Canada and Mexico for 2026, but they're also happening in Paris for the Olympics in 2024. They're obviously happening in Qatar. They happen in, in Japan. They happen in China. And so these mega events always bring with them a, a heightened focus on the, on the political, but they are at the end of the day, a way to make money for a lot of vested interests. And those vested interests are primarily in security and militarization and policing, technology interests, car companies, fossil fuel companies, tourism and hospitality. And so it's really a way of accelerating the or, or deepening the uh, cascading crises that we're already in while putting all of those questions to the side so we can just fo- focus on the sport. And this is, for me, one of the real constant tensions with these events is that there is a, a certain there's a beauty to football, there's a, to soccer, to to all, to all sports. Sports are beautiful and they allow us to come together in, as communities, even if they're imagined communities in very particular ways, but that passion and that interest and that cultural possibility and those real beautiful moments are captured and somehow taking, taken away from us uh, through their integration into these interlocked systems of, of global capitalism. And if we don't think about it in that way, then we miss the opportunity to really engage the event at multiple levels and to have a more critical perspective on on how uh, on what's going on on the on the pitch, but then also how we can engage uh, and work for positive change within them. 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm from Ghana originally, and I'm so into normally what is happening with the Ghana team. I'm still getting the updates, but just find it more and more difficult as we are, you know, looking at all of those different factors that you've described, all of the ways and you know the human costs of these mega sports increasingly more difficult to watch with the kind of joy that maybe I did when I was a little girl thinking about here in Los Angeles where I am and we just had a Super Bowl out here in Inglewood and a big super um stadium that was built um, with all of these promises of how it was going to become like an economic boom for Inglewood. And there's going to be all these businesses and the event itself is going to support the local businesses from the t-shirt guy to um, the folks that are renting out their parking lot for people to be able to park here instead of the stadium, et cetera. And yet that just doesn't seem to happen. And I'm thinking about Brazil, I'm World Cup there. I'm thinking about, you know, here, of course, as I said, with the Super Bowl, I'm thinking about the um, the Olympics that happened in Los Angeles long ago um, and how that economic boom never really occurs. What is, have you seen in terms of those trends as well? The promises versus what actually happened? Well, the, they're basically lies. Uh, the boom happens. It's just the boom happens in a very narrow corner of the economy. Uh, the boom happens for the people that get the contracts, but the boom and and it's this it's the classic trickle down theory you know we're going to we're going to take all this money and spend it on these public infrastructures and then for a, you know for a football american football stadium it's used 8 days a year basically or, or 10 days a year for football games and so how is that good for a t-shirt seller what do they do the other 355 days a year um so these the the stadium economics never work out and then these are also always associated with real estate deals. And so the developers make money, uh, the construction firms make money, the tourism companies might make money. Certainly the, the team owners make money because they don't have to pay for the infrastructure. They don't pay for the development of their players because that's why we have uh, the NCAA to develop world-class football and basketball players. Um, so publicly financing the development of talent for the NFL and the, and the NBA. And so, and it goes on and on. And so this is just a scam that has been played out in country after country and city after city. And we continue to swallow it because we, especially in the United States, we just love entertaining ourselves to death with sports. And and in, in many cases, it is literally to death. And with, we see the CTIs, we see the collapse of, of uh, I grew up in Texas. And so I had every summer, there'd be reports of some poor kid in West Texas who was training in 105 degree heat and hit his head too many times in practice and died. And so what we see is at the top of the pyramid. We don't see all the broken bodies down below. I also lived in Brazil for a long time. And the abuse of young players is notorious. People die, there's sexual abuse, people live far from their families, all with the promise of getting to the top of that pyramid. And the same promise that is made to players is also made to communities. Um, when we are told that if we host an event, we'll see this widespread distribution of the wealth that comes in, but no one ever signs off on the bottom line on that. Uh, the only contracts that are signed are between the city and with FIFA or the IOC or the NFL, and there's no one to stick around and deliver on legacy promises or to have long-term uh, economic development projects or 
sport participation projects. And so all the myths around LA 84 are not true. They're myths, they're lies, and the same lies are being trotted out again in 2022 to promise that the LA 28 games are going to repeat the magic of 84, when what they really bring is vectorized gentrification into Inglewood, new shiny stadiums that only serve a very upper middle class clientele, and the pushing out of uh, homeless populations or houseless populations and billions of dollars for an already radically militarized police force. And so that's the reality. And now we know it's coming. We can start organizing against it. And fortunately, there are great organizations like No Games LA and the uh, homeless coalitions in Los Angeles that are doing really good work on the ground ahead of these events in order to actually draw public attention to it and provide some sort of guardrails for the local populations. Shout out to those organizations. Um, They have really been doing work in trying to keep these issues elevated um, as it pertains to all of those negative impacts on communities that are already marginalized that you've described. And yet, you know, the Olympic Games, um, the World Cup to a lesser degree, some of these other mega events, they try to describe themselves as being really sustainable, right? And that they're like the model of sustainability. And so, you know, first of all, what does that mean? Because every time I hear that, I'm trying to figure out, are you saying you have, you've bought a lot of carbon emission credit? Like I'm confused as to what that means when they're saying they're sustainable. And, um, you know, how off, you know, we know that that's not the case, but how much not the case is it? Yeah, to to quote my uh, friend Jules Boykoff, uh, the carbon emissions and sustainability promises are like buying a unicorn with Bitcoin. Um, it's just not, <laughs> it's just not real, you know. And so for me, the, the buying carbon and credits and credit swap defaults, etc., is like the medieval Catholic Church practice of buying indulgences for your sins. Where there's no evidence that it has any real value in terms of reducing carbon emissions. And when you think about the uh, an event like and if we just focus on the Qatari World Cup, which they're saying that they are carbon neutral, which we absolutely cannot believe, um, it's a petro state. And so they've spent more than $250 billion of fossil fuel money on transforming a very small country in order to host an event that is inherently unsustainable. An elite sport in general is inherently unsustainable. If we think about how many miles are driven in the United States to take kids to soccer practice and soccer games on an average weekend, soccer itself is not a sustainable practice in a country like the United States. And then the production. So we think of how many miles has Kristen Pulisic traveled in his life? How much carbon has gone into the production of the United States uh, best athletes, the entire political economy of elite sport globally is unsustainable. And then when we fly tens of thousands, if not a million people around the world to go to Qatar, to drink bottled water, to go to stadiums in the middle of the desert that required 50,000 liters of water a day to, to maintain that perfect, pristine greenness that we see, that energy for transmission, the consumption, it, and all of the sponsors, and it's just an event to sell more stuff. And so if we're going to take the crises of sustainability, of global warming, the, the cascading crises that we are in seriously, if we're going to take this seriously, then we can't host these events anymore. They just have to stop. 
at the scale that they're happening. We have to also re radically rethink whether or not elite sport is a voluntary activity that we should all be pursuing and engaging in and loving. Uh, and so I know it's tough to separate these things out, but if we think about the carbon footprint of one NFL game or one World Cup game, it's simply untenable and goes against every kind of sustainable practice that we can imagine. And so it's inherently contradictory. And so there's no possible way that any event of this kind could be sustainable for anything other than that system in which it's operational. And so it sustains the players, it sustains the owners, it sustains global corporate capitalism. That's what it sustains. It's not inherently, uh, there's no chance that it could ever become something that is in line with inhabiting our planet within the boundaries that exist. That's a tough one for folks. Put down those elite sports. That's a tough one. Tough one, Professor yeah, Gaffney. But it is. It's tough for tough. me too, but that's the reality. We got. We have to actually be forced, faced with that question. Do you want this to go on <laughs> or do you want you want a habitable planet? Yeah, no. And I know that there are many, you know, from communities, black communities, other the marginalized, economically marginalized communities around the world. Now, I'm not just talking about the United States where this becomes their moment. Right. And there it's pre presented as like the hope, not just for them, but for their families and communities. Let us be frank. When we look at these teams, some of the French team, I mean, some of these teams that are allegedly teams of Europe have hardly any Europeans that are playing for them. Um, I've never I've been to Ecuador, never saw as many black people as I see in the percentage of black people on those world that World Cup team. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, how how much does that really help those um, people's communities that are so reflected. I mean, even with the United States, it has never been so black diasporic. You got folks from here, from the continent, from the Caribbean um, on that team in ways that have never been the case. What are the chances that this also turns into something that's helpful for our communities on some level? Yeah, there's no question that it helps on some level, but would you not rather have clean drinking water and and a well-educated, healthier, happier population that could compete as in local competitions. Right? There's no, there's nothing to say that you need to compete out of this international, global level once every four years in order to have the kind of solidarity and uh, communal coming together that could happen in a lot of different forums. It's just this forum has captured our imaginations because it's so powerful um, and it's and it's kind of exclusionary too. And so these these things only happen on a nation state uh, nation state level. And if we look at who's on the US team, there's a glaring absence of Latinos. There's not one Latino. And so why is it that the American team is all of a sudden majority African-American or Afro-Caribbean or or from the continent? But there are no Mexican-Americans, there's no Colombian-Americans, there's no Cuban-Americans. Where are these? And, and this this has to do with the structural problems of the way U.S. soccer functions. You know, it's a pay-to-play system. Um, it's highly suburban. Um, Latinos, you know, for many years, the U.S. soccer had no one that spoke Spanish in its, in its head, in its front office. MLS is terrible at reaching out to Latino communities. There's no developmental aspect to this. Uh, and so it becomes a, a one way for immigrants to get out of 
out of poverty. And, and that's not acceptable as the only dream that people should have to make their lives and make their livelihoods for not just for them, but their whole families. Um, and so it's, you know, these are really difficult questions that we need to be asking all the time. Every time you turn on the TV to watch this, you need to be asking yourself this question. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Um, really wanted to be able to have this conversation and talk a little bit deeper. Go go beyond the pitch. I mean, there's enough on the pitch, right? But go beyond the pitch uh, with respect to the World Cup. So I really appreciate you joining us. How do people follow you, Be keep in touch with you, follow what you're doing um, if they want to do that? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Geostadia, the geography of stadiums, G-E-O-S-T-A-D-I-A. So you can follow me there. And that's probably the easiest way. And I'm at New York University and uh, working on issues of sustainability. I'm the, probably the easiest Christopher Gaffney to find out there at the moment. <laughs> Excellent. And we're glad we found you. Thank you so very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. And go Ghana. Songstress from Benin, Queen Mother Angelique Kijo, one of my favorites. This is Nana Jumpy. I'm today's guest host of Sojourner Truth. And that is a song fitting to introduce our next guest, Dr. Amara Enya. Dr. Amara Enya is a strategist, social innovation and social impact professional, and public policy expert on city and state policy as well as international affairs, foreign policy, with expertise in Central Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, based in Chicago. She writes extensively on issues of education, economic development, fiscal policy, equity and policy, and systems thinking. Through her work, she's forged authentic relationships across the city of Chicago on many areas of policy, including economic development, housing, public finance, education, workforce development, 
food security, public safety, and more. As a bridge builder and advocate, she has actively worked to usher in transformative policies that improve quality of life for Chicagoans and others of us across the country and the globe. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Enya. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much. I'm going to call you Amara. Is that okay? <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> right. That's fine. I am really excited about this first session of the UN Permanent Forum on Peoples of African Descent happening in Geneva. I know it has been you know, a long time in the making. It is part of this continuing legacy of efforts by the global Black diaspora to address global anti-Black racism, its vestiges, and continuing impacts on our world in this world body. But I'm sure there are many who may be unfamiliar with these efforts to establish this permanent form. So could let's start from the beginning. What is the permanent form on peoples of African descent? Yeah, yeah. No, just to get more folks familiar. So the permanent form on people of African descent is a consultative mechanism for people of African descent um, and other stakeholders, but mainly people of African descent around the world. And it's designed to be a platform for improving the safety and quality of life and livelihoods of people of African descent. So that entails uh, many of the things we mentioned around the economy, around public health, around housing, around um, education, basically uh, just the human rights and the rights to live with dignity um, for Black people around the world. And so the Permanent Forum also is an advisory body to the Human Rights Council, um, and it is in line with the program of activities for the International Decade of People of African Descent. So, which is extends, goes until there's about two years left on the International Decade, but the Permanent Forum is a part of um, the International Decade for People of African Descent. And finally, it also works with existing mechanisms uh, that the UN has to promote action to combat racism against people of African descent. So it's designed to really be a cohering mechanism that engages with other UN mechanisms as it relates to issues of concern uh, for people of African descent. Now, when it comes to just the pure numbers, you're talking about these other mechanisms. When you, when I think of the UN, when many of us think of the UN, you would think that the global South and especially majority Black countries would carry a lot of weight there. But, you know, white minority rule is not dead. <laughs> it still exists in some spaces. How might the permanent forum on peoples of African descent shift some of that narrative and some of the power so that issues that are of concern to peoples of African descent get the respect, that it, the dignity um, that they deserve. Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of the assessment of the United Nations as a multilateral entity, a multilateral institution. The reality is that the UN, like many multilaterals, um, were designed with a particular lens. They're designed with a particular worldview, and that worldview has prioritized and privileged the global north. And so that that's just the reality of the situation. And so uh, unfortunately, what that has meant is that people of African descent, that our voices have not been amplified at the level that we would have hoped in the past and the present. 
Um, but that's not to say that it hasn't been a useful space for us to gather, right? So we have been able to utilize the the United Nations um, at times throughout history. But the reality is that it it has been part of the challenge is just the sheer scope and scale of the bureaucracy of the UN. It can just be hard to engage. Uh, especially coming from civil society. Um, and that's with whether it's community-based organizations, grassroots organizations. It's just such a huge bureaucracy that that creates a barrier, I think, to engagement. Um, and then the other is just the level of influence of the global north. And I think that is built into the design. Um, and it's why this mechanism is so critical because it is the assertion of people of African descent really asserting their place uh, as stakeholders on par with everyone else in the world and not as sort of marginalized or secondary voices uh, who are just, you know, not really actively able to engage. And that's why this this mechanism is so important. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. It, you know, it also brings all of us together. And I'm very excited about that aspect of it as well. It's so easy when you're like in your country or in your region to be super focused on your issues. And sometimes, you know, when you are able to get with people, you know, Black folks from other places, it's like, oh, yeah, you're in Brazil. You're also dealing with this. You know, we're hearing about what's happening with Qatar Qatar and Black folks over there. You know, you start to put some pieces together, which is lovely. And I know that the activities of the permanent forum are going to allow us to do even more of that. What kinds of activities and events do you have planned? And does someone have to fly to Geneva in order to participate in them? Yeah, so we we have a number of side events uh, that are planned for that week. And I also want to draw attention to the establishment of of this working group. I serve as, as uh, one of the founders and the chair of the International Civil Society Working Group for the PFAD, for the Permanent Forum. And part of the reason why the working group was established is because we knew that even after the resolution that was passed in the General Assembly last August, this is August of 2021, we knew that there was still going to it, it it was still going to require a significant level of advocacy to make sure that the permanent form is what it needs to be. And when I mention advocacy, I'm speaking specifically to some issues with regard to making sure that it's appropriately resourced, that it has the kind of funding to make the secretariat impactful. Um, this is where issues like language access become uh, significant. We speak so many languages, uh, even just going by the major, the big languages that, you know, your Spanish, French, Portuguese, um, English, Spanish, French, Portuguese, having consistent language translation and interpretation is critical if we're doing anything that involves people of African descent around the world, Africans and people of African descent around the world. So that needs to be institutionalized and that requires resources, financial resources as well. Um, staffing levels. Right now, the permanent form only has 1.5 staff members, right? And so you can imagine you're doing, you're working with the secretariat that's supposed to engage civil society around the world, and you don't, you only have 1.5 staff members. So we knew that it wasn't enough to get the resolution passed, although we worked extremely hard on that. 
we knew that we had to continue to organize so that we can make sure that the permanent form actually has what it needs to be impactful. Um, and so that's how the working group was formed. And that's why the individuals that have been meeting monthly now for over a year, almost going on two years now, have been really pushing that in addition to the events that will happen at the permanent forum, we are concerned with the structure, the structure of this UN mechanism and how it engages civil society. And in that regard, we, we've designed side events to get to that. And we've also really emphasized with the secretariat and with the UN that we're not interested in just coming to talk, right? We're not asking people, we're, I in good conscience cannot ask people to fly to Geneva just to have a couple of conversations and then go back home. So we've been really intentional about trying to structure strategy sessions, spaces for collaboration, um, places where we can workshop ideas and really designing sessions that actually reflect that so that for those who are able to make it to Geneva, it'll be productive and generative. And we're also for our side events, making them hybrid so that those who are not able to travel to Geneva can tune in uh, virtually and participate uh, in, in the events on site. It sounds good. Sounds like power. Sounds like power and would expect nothing less. Thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more and um, you know find out about the side events, um, if there's someone that's like, you know, maybe is working somewhere that's willing to spot them, get them to Geneva, or they want to join virtually, just learn more about the permanent forum. Where do they go? Yeah, so I would encourage folks who want to learn more, they can actually send an email to the working group. And we are trying, we're trying to be very responsive to people who have questions. So that email address is IWG dot pfad pfpad at gmail.com so again it's iwg dot pfad at gmail.com so we're asking folks you can send an email if you have questions we are open we're really trying to support as many people as possible i also encourage people to visit um, ohchr.org. That's the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner. They can get information about the permanent forum, logistics for the forum. It's, it's December 5th through the 8th. And we also have our side events listed on the official UN uh, uh, website as well. So if they go to ohchr.org, um, they'll be able to, to check out more information as well as the side events, logistics details, our side events are posted there as well, but I encourage people to reach out directly also via email so that we can answer questions specifically and we can we can uh, just engage people specifically about what we're doing on site, how they can get involved and what happens after the permanent forum in December. We're going to bring you back to talk about what happens after the permanent forum, <laughs> do a report back and a look forward. Delightful to have you on. Thank you so, so very much. I will see you in Geneva. Um, I really appreciate you. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in Geneva. Thank you. Awesome. If you are on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Look for us there. Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. On Twitter and Instagram, follow our handle at SoTrueRadio. This is Nana Jumphy guest hosting for Margaret Prescott on Sojourner Truth. 
On November 15th, a federal district court in Washington, D.C. ordered the Biden administration to end its use of Title 42, an archaic health policy weaponized by President Trump to prevent asylum seekers from entering the United States through the U.S.-Mexico border. Over a million migrants have been expelled from the border without an asylum hearing under the policy. The Biden administration set a record, expelling over 26,000 Haitians alone in just the past year. Joining us to talk about the impact of Title 42 and what we might expect next is Ronald Claude. Ronald Claude is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, also known as BAJI. He's formerly a legislative assistant with the Office of Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and has done policy work on transportation, immigration, and foreign policy-related issues. As the proud son of immigrants, the immigrant story is one that he is deeply familiar with and is the space and community where he continues to serve and, I would say, thrive. Greetings, Ronald. Good morning. Thank you for having me. How are you all? Well, well, well. Um, before we talk about the district court's decision, just we want to give people a refresher um, briefly, very briefly, about Title 42 and its impact on migrants, particularly Black migrants. We know right. that the policy barred folks from coming inside. How did this impact um, Black migrants in particular? Well, I think um, it, 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 it impacted them negatively overall, right? I think that's the first first thing to note is that nothing good came out of it for Black migrants. But how it impacted them, it, it, unfortunately, in, uh, in a variety of negative ways. So I think one of the first things we saw was that... Um, the compassion and dignity in terms of the response needed for folks seeking refuge in their in you know in their time of need, um, you know, was not met. And so I think as folks can see right now how uh, Ukrainian migrants are being treated um, in terms of the the assistance they're receiving, rightfully so, right? Um, Black migrants have not received that, and that's mainly due to the impacts of Title 42. So we're seeing, for example, many people have talked about the situation in Haiti. Uh, we've seen what happened in Del Rio um, two, uh, last fall. Um, and how so many Haitian migrants were stuck under that bridge, as well as many other Black migrants. Um, so you could see that there was like almost a bottleneck literally at the border. But then what el how else it has impacted is how many folks have been trapped um, in, you know, in Central, in different countries in Central America, but specifically Mexi Mexico, um, in a city called Tapachula near its southern border of Mexico. Um, and we, we, we actually uh, at Baji was able to go down there this spring um, and we were able to see firsthand how many Black migrants are just trapped there. And simply because as the United States is implementing policies like Title 42, it's finding creative ways to extend its border um, as south as possible, <laughs> uh, to the, I think as folks are saying, to the southern tip of Chile, um, in order to, you know, keep Black migrants from reaching, um, you know, the United States border in order to seek asylum. So I think it's it, the ways that Title 42 has impacted Black migrants, it's it, it's simply it's cheated uh, the United States' uh, responsibility to follow the international law and to respect their human rights, blocking them from seeking, you know, asylum, which is a human right. Now, in the beginning, I think earlier this year, there was a court that indicated uh, that they could not, the Biden administration was could not 
and Title 42. So um, after at least a couple of years of fighting and, and hollering and yelling, um, we it came to the point where the Biden administration did agree to end Title 42. And then another district court um, indicated that no, that couldn't happen, that they wouldn't be able to wind down Title 42 and had to keep those processes going. And so a lot of folks, including many folks who may be listening here, would say, look, they couldn't end Title 42 earlier because this court prevented them from doing that. And that's why all these people have been held there. And it's not been because of the administration. How do you respond to that? Well, I, I think that's that's where we, uh, you know, I think they're not giving this administration enough credit. You know, I think these people know how to move quickly, move agilely and respond um, efficiently to these types of situations when they want to. And that's the key. Right. And I think I was trying to get into that a little bit earlier in my first response in terms of just like this highlights the disparate treatment. Right. So, again, uh, you know, not to pick on any group, but how we responded to the, or how the United States, excuse me, responded to the Ukrainian migrant situation is that they created um, a, per, a quick parole program. There was there was opportunities within, uh, you know, HUD in order to provide them with housing. So all those things were created outside of Title 42. So, you know, Title 42, if it's you know, if it's working, if like if it's working how it's supposed to work, it should apply to Ukrainians. But um, they created programs and parole programs that, you know, bypass that. So I think when people say that, you know, it's out of the Biden administration's hand or whatnot, I think they're giving them they're not giving themselves enough credit. Because quite frankly, it, the United States has the ability to be creative when it wants to, and it chose not to specifically when it came to securing those same resources, those same supports, or even just quite frankly, programs uh, for Black migrants. So why why couldn't we get a Unite Haiti, a Unite Cameroon, a Unite Ethiopia, you name it? Um, the, we could have created the same type of programs and mechanisms that had nothing to do with Title 42 that would that would have supported, you know, the influx of black migrants um, in need of refuge. Yeah, thanks for that, because I think for a lot of folks, you know, think about the what happened with Ukrainians and others as something outside of um, the Title 42 period. But it actually occurred at the same time that Title 42 was happening. And um, so I thank you. I think it's important for people to um, understand that. And so now we have this district court decision that um, said that Title 42 was uh, uh, capricious and arbitrary. In other words, it was foolishness and <laughs> was uh, something that should not have, have been there, was sort of made up reasons um, for that to occur, pointing out that it wasn't stopping the spread of um, COVID-19, that that wasn't a primary concern for this country and any of us that are walking around seeing what the numbers are in this country during this whole time of Title 42 of COVID deaths um, and sickness know that that's the truth. Um, and so what happens next? Do we expect that there's going to be the kind of reception for black and we, you know, we'd be remiss to not say also indigenous Asian um, migrants that are at the border uh, trying to seek asylum. Can we expect that to be sort of the orderly move more well, folks into the asylum process? One, I would say one would hope, but before I, I, I fully answered the question, I would also just want to say again, with the hypocrisy of the whole thing was just that this was also happening. Title 42 was implemented and in place 
as we literally had variety of folks at uh, different levels of government telling us the pandemic, it was over. Mind you, this was in between Omicron, the different variants, et cetera. So it just goes to show that it was like this policy that was supposed to be quote unquote protecting us one was failing, and two, uh, quite frankly, I thought it, it seemed that the pandemic was over. So, what is it protecting us from? So, you, folks can sit with that as they as they will. But um, what I think, in terms of your question, I think the thing that we're eyeing now is that hopefully it would it would be like okay, now things go quote unquote back to normal. But I think one, we have to recognize the fact that even what was happening before Title 42 was not very advantageous to to Black migrants. You know, they weren't the ones receiving asylum approval rates or et cetera. So I think, one, we have to recognize that. Um, and then, two, I think, you know, unfortunately, based on how these midterm elections turned out, you know, where we split the House and the Senate, um, I doubt that by the time that the court's uh, decision takes place, and it's fully implemented that there will be a situation where there's a clear strategy or plan um, in place. And so I think that leaves room for, unfortunately, Republicans to have a bigger say than they would have if we were able to handle this or the United States was able to handle this earlier. So I think now what we're eyeing is what are, Republic, what are Republicans going to say? I know they're already gearing up um, for an investigation on how the border was handled. So unfortunately, rather than, you know, Title 42 ending and maybe bringing more um, calmness to the border and to, you know, to the migrants seeking refuge. Um, I think, unfortunately, maybe there's more chaos on the horizon because of now it's going to become a very, uh, it's always been a political issue, but I think even more so now the dynamics based on how our current government is after this midterms is going to create a little more chaos. So I think we're, we're going to need to keep our eye on the ball and make sure that new iterations or new Title 42s, you know, that do the same thing are not created in its stead. Yeah, I mean, we know at some point, um, rescue me if I'm wrong, there was talk uh, on the Hill about actually codifying Title 42 and making that legislation. And would be interesting to see if that rears its ugly head again um, with uh, this, the new iteration of what is the Congress is going to be looking like. Absolutely. I think that that is definitely something to keep an eye on, because um, as we said, I think, unfortunately, why why that was a concern of codifying Title 42 earlier this year was that some Democrats feared that if they weren't supportive of, you know, stricter border measures, that they could potentially lose um, their uh, they could lose their seat uh, in the the upcoming elections. And one of those senators was Warnock. Um, and, you know, there was a variety of other um, Democrat senators that, you know, joined, joined that call. So it's something where even though we may have the Senate and not the House, we have to be wary of the fact that, unfortunately, not all the Democrats are on the same page about ending this racist policy. And so in our last minute, um, <laughs> if you could please... Talk a little bit about this Guantanamo Bay, because that is also an option that's been laid on the table for Haitians. And, you know, I don't know if it's gotten enough um, press. So we've got about a minute, but can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, the the whole thing is like you telling me that the only way you know how to, you know, support these people and help them is to put them <laughs> in detention, essentially. And that's what it is. And unfortunately, there's a long historical thread of using Guantanamo Bay for Haitians and for Black migrants, period. And so the only thing that it shows is that the United States, when it sees Black migrants, sees detention. And which is unfortunate and just it's unjust, you know, and a variety of other words that I'm not sure if I can say on this, but (laughs) there we go. But what I will say about that is just, again, it's another indication of the hypocrisy that is in U.S. immigration. On one hand, we have the you have the United States State Department telling folks, Haitians that like, you know, first gen, whatever, that it is unsafe for you to go to Haiti. And yet it continues to deport Haitians or expel Haitians that are seeking refuge in the United States or have been here, whatever it may be, to that same country that they're saying is dangerous and unsafe. I got to end you there, Ronald. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so very much. How do people get a hold of Baji or follow Baji if they want to? For sure. So we, you know, we are on Twitter, Baji Tweet. Um, you know, you can join, you can visit our website where you'll have all of that information at Baji.org, B-A-J-I.org. And then obviously if folks want to reach me, I'm always available by email at Ronald.Baji.org. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Appreciate you. Have a great day. We are out of time, folks. I want to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. 